0: so wide away, captured in the moment by the beauty all around her, there's nowhere else that she would rather be.
1: Hello and welcome to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. This is Karen Modokitis, and you can call me Karen. I'm a certified life and weight loss coach, along with being a Daring Way facilitator, And in 2006, I started the show and have hosted over 450 interviews through the years. Why do I host this show? For you. I see too many people who define themselves by the circumstances in their life and the difficulties they face. So I have the show for you so you can see what is possible in your own life. You see, I believe there are many ways to live life. It's not a one size fits all. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. And we can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us. While you may believe successful people don't have difficult situations, this show is here to set you straight. Because we all have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. In this podcast, you'll find out that the stumbling falling down and getting your butt kicked is actually the true pathway to success. When you're willing to be vulnerable and rise back up in your life, instead of accepting your life as good as it gets, you can find out here how others have created great lives. So you can too. And when ordinary people share their authentic backstage truth behind their success, The doors of possibility open for all of us. Many years ago, I came across a lady who had not graduated from college until she was almost 30 years old. I was intrigued. By the time I found her, she was a college professor and on the verge of changing millions of people's lives. Today, this woman, Brené Brown, university professor and researcher, is now a New York Times bestselling author famous Ted speaker with over 25 million views has sat on the chair with Oprah and is the CEO of the daring way. And today I'm bringing back the third of the three interviews I've done with Brene Brown to get you ready for her upcoming book, rising strong, which comes out August 25th, 2015. In this podcast, I'm sharing with you my interview with Brene in our discussion about vulnerability, shame, the arena, comfort, and what Daring Greatly really means. I will circle back after this interview. Enjoy. Brene, hello and welcome back. I'm so happy to be with you again. Thank you for having me back. So first off, let's start with what is Daring Greatly for those that haven't read your book yet?
2: You know, it's, I guess, I guess the way, the best way to explain it is to talk a little bit about my inspiration for the book. Um, Daring Greatly is a phrase from a Theodore Roosevelt quote. Um, can I read a little passage of it?
1: Absolutely.
2: Okay. So it's a quote that I read during a real struggle in my life that really shifted something in me. Um, and this is what I read. He, it's a, from a speech that he gave um, in Paris in the early 1900s. And there's a passage that reads, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst if fails, at least fails while daring greatly. And when I read that quote, what I really thought is, this is everything I've ever learned about vulnerability. You know, a dozen years of studying emotions like, you know, vulnerability, shame, courage, worthiness, authenticity. Um, this is everything I've learned about vulnerability. Um, it's not about winning. It's not about failing. It's about showing up and letting ourselves be seen. It's about walking into the arena. Um, and I just thought that metaphor is so helpful and I use it all the time now when I'm going to do something that feels very vulnerable to me. I think, you know, you're walking into the arena this is, this is how and where you want to live. So that's the that's the meaning of the phrase daring greatly.
1: Well, and isn't Daring Greatly though in contrast to us that want to seek comfort and safety.
2: No, you know, I don't think that's the case. It's a great it's a really good question. I don't think anyone's ever asked it of me. Um I don't think so, because you know, for me I'm really good at working and I'm really good at perfecting and I'm really good at hustling and I tie, I can often tie my my self-worth to my productivity. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the hardest walk into the arena for me is seeking comfort, is taking care of myself, is saying no, is, you know, turning down something and, a, you know, a, an opportunity to go speak somewhere or go do something because what I really want to do is be in my house, I want to take a nap. I want to nest. I want to bake. I want to cook. You know, I want to do those things that bring a lot of joy into my life. So I don't think necessarily, you know, daring greatly is not about, you know, a lot of people say, so you saying about, you know, skydiving and cliff jumping, (laughs) you know, um, no, I'm talking about those moments when you're at the PTO meeting and you're thinking, wow, you know, Daring Greatly is raising your hand and saying, God, it sounds like y'all are really excited about this fundraiser. I'm, I'm, I love the idea of raising some more money so we can do these things for the school. I have no idea what you're talking about. And it sounds like a disaster. Mm-hmm. Like that's Daring Greatly. Daring Greatly is, you know, when, when we asked people what is vulnerability, when we asked for really concrete examples for the research, people said things like the first date after my divorce.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: trying to get pregnant after my second miscarriage, sitting with my wife who's got stage three breast cancer and making what seems like impossible plans for our young children. Um, you know, from a parenting perspective, there were so many examples that kind of, you know, this one really, I thought um, kind of captured the sentiment Um, being really excited for my son who's trying out for orchestra and is just so you know, so thrilled about the idea of possibly making first chair and being excited for him and enthusiastic and supporting him as he goes off to school, knowing that that's not going to happen. You know, I think safety and comfort are really important parts of our lives. And I think for some of us, they feel daring to take care of ourselves in that way. But I also think there are moments in our lives where we're called upon to be courageous, not heroic, but courageous to show up and be seen in our lives. And I think that's what Daring Greatly is about.
1: So I guess when I was thinking of comfort, like for, okay, going back to your example of work for you, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't work doing your work and doing your work with the standards that you have, isn't that in a sense comfortable? Because it's something that you have a huge amount of evidence that you're good at it. Versus, you know, um, maybe when you go into, I I've heard you talk about this when you went to a, or maybe you talked about it on our, my show, that's where I've heard it. Uh, you went to a blogging conference for women and, uh, after you were done speaking, you went walking around and there was uncomfort there because there was the whole social things, right? The, right. Po- the popular girls. So there was discomfort there. Speaking, though may have been more in your comfort zone versus the right. social situations. Tell me where I'm right. wrong.
2: No, you're Tokyo. Oh my God. Nailed. That's me. Complete introvert.
1: Mm-hmm. And so so I guess what I'm thinking is that, you know, there are times, there are things that come really easy for me, right, which may be perceived as challenging for other people, but it's the skill set that I've developed. And so I'm comfortable, and I'm going to still reach and grow. But then there's the other part of us where – Maybe we don't want to reach and grow because we're afraid it's not possible. Um, you know, and I guess we can just in athletics or in music, we can talk about, as I see this happen with kids, that, you know, the idea of being a really fast swimmer or a really good soccer player is awesome, right? But then there's like, as you talk about in your book, there's that gap between the reality of putting in that extra effort, pushing ourselves to do better, right? It's one thing to show up to practice, then it's another thing to go into physical discomfort.
2: Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think you're onto something that's really, that really is incredibly important and needs to be impassable. But I mean, I think, you you know, I think for all, I think daring greatly, I think being vulnerable and showing up in our lives, is different for all of us. So mm-hmm. I think about the story I tell about Ellen at her swim meet in Daring Greatly. I mean, mm-hmm. think for her swimming the stroke that she can't swim um, well at all, knowing that she's going to be in the pool and kids are getting out. Mm-hmm. And I think showing up to that and trying and, I think that's daring greatly, and I think that was way past our comfort zone, and I don't think we have to do it all the time, but I think we do have to do it. I think if you're really comfortable in your job and you know that you do it well, I think that and i and you work for me
0: mm-hmm.
2: um and one day you decide, you know I'm really you know just because and I think this is a cut this happens a lot, and you just point this out just because we're good at it doesn't mean that it's not. You know, that's not that we haven't worked to achieve a skill set. And you know, and you're, you know, you work for me, and you're thinking, I'm really good at this work.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I really contribute. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd like to ask for a raise because I know a couple of people around me have received raises in the last six months.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: To me, making yourself vulnerable and saying, "Hey, I really think I'm I'm contributing. I think I'm valuable here, and I'd like that value to be expressed with a raise." To me, that's daring.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: To me, that's putting yourself out there. So I, you know, to me, vulnerability, you know, I define vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. I don't think, I don't, at least I don't know of any relationship that any of us are in with another person that doesn't require us to straddle uncertainty and risk and emotional exposure on a pretty regular basis. (laughs) You know, I just don't know of one. I can't think of one in my life with my kids, with my husband, with my sisters, my brother, my parents, my friends. Um, so I don't know. So if the, if the goal is comfort, then I think what we would end up having to do is disrupt most of our relationships, keep our head down at work,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and just kind of play small. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and cut ourselves off our connection, which I don't think works. I mean, the thing is, if you're in relationship, if you're in connection, you experience uncertainty. You know, I love this, you know, I love, you know, when so many people, when I said, what is vulnerability? The example, they, the first example that came out of their mouth was saying, I love you first. Yeah. There's nothing comfortable about that. No. Right. Um, And it can be heartbreaking and many people told me (laughs) really detailed stories of heartbreak that accompanied that dare. Um, But I think that is, that's the sauce in life. I mean, that's the juice. That's the, that's the part that brings that's the, you know, those vulnerable moments are the moments that kind of define our lives. They bring meaning to our lives. And so, I think it's okay to seek comfort and safety, but there are many, 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 many people who seek comfort and safety to the point where they're disconnected, they're lonely, mm-hmm. um, or they're resentful.
1: So isn't the kind of comfort and safety that you're talking about with, you know, nesting, being at home, baking, baking? engaging with your kids, resting. Isn't that different? Isn't that more of a replenishing comfort and safety versus For me? It is versus yes. this other thing that we're talking about where it's more of an avoidance. It's, you know, like I think about when I was in college and I didn't want to ever be vulnerable. So I decided that I was never going to get married and never have kids because if I did that, I would be safe. Right. Well, Oh God. <laughs> yes. Well, yes. I have kids two two bonus kids and two kids that, you know, um, two other kids. So I have four kids all together. And, uh, I went totally against that and went straight into vulnerability. Right. And I have a husband. So, um, but I really thought I would be safe, but then, you know, and so I, I would, that was my way of being comfortable. This would be safe. Let me just isolate myself. But then reality came into effect, right. Where I let my heart reach more and I went into tremendous discomfort and vulnerability Mm. the past 20 years. It's been great, the most rewarding thing, but it's been hard.
2: Yeah, so I wonder, yeah, I think, I wonder if the comfort that you're describing is what I would call, like, in my book, in my research, disengagement. Like, I'm disengaging. Like, I'm not going to be an intimate relationship. I'm not, I'm going to disengage from the parts of my life that I feel like would make me the most painfully vulnerable, which, you know, without question, love, parenting, those are two huge ones. And so, yeah, I think that's true. I think, you know, I think I've interviewed, and I know, and I don't think, I've interviewed a lot of people who do disengage. You know, there are people who set boundaries with their families of origin because, that's how they stay sane and that's really appropriate and that's how they stay healthy. But there are also people who are just kind of disengaged. They, you know, they don't really, they're not all in, they're Mm -hmm. not all in in their relationships. They're not all in at work because there's almost this idea that it's easier to live disappointed than it is to feel disappointment. So I'm never going to really expect too much.
1: So, so, and you talked about that in your book, Darren, greatly where it's easier to stay in perpetual disappointment than to, than to go in and out, dip in and out. Can you say more about that? That fascinated me.
2: Well, you know, one of the things I talk about, it's a part of a bigger, you know, one of the things I do in the book is I talk about vulnerability, what it is, what it isn't, kind of try to dispel the myths of vulnerability. And then I talk about the way we protect ourselves from vulnerability, Mm -hmm. And so one of the big ways, in fact, it's the first thing I talk about because it was one of the most powerful, the most common and the most life changing for me um, is foreboding joy. And what it is, is basically, I mean, you're you're listening demographic is there. You have a lot of parents who listen, right? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Okay.
2: So any of us who have parented probably know, you know, that feeling of I'll ask you, you know, you have four kids. Have you ever stood over your child while they're sleeping? Yes, And thought to yourself, oh, my God, I love you. Like, I didn't know it was possible. And then in that split second, pictured something horrific happening to your child. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, so statistically, you know, 90% of parents that we've talked to do that. I mean, they just, we just do that. So what is that, you know, and another example for proof for people who aren't parents, you know, it's the story of, you know, you, you're, you sit up in the morning, you think to yourself, wow, work is going really well my parents are pretty healthy. Um, my house looks really, my apartment looks really cute. Um, shit, like, Oh my God, what's going to happen now? You know, um, that whole kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. And so one of the things that I found in my work is the reason we do that is because joy is the most vulnerable, difficult emotion to feel and this is coming from someone who studies shame and fear, you know, I, I study some hard ones. So when I say that joy is tough, I mean, I'm not kidding around, you know, it's tough. And so what we end up doing is in those moments when things are going really well, or we're kind of in a, you know, there's a wash of joy that comes over us because we see our kids do something or we look at them, you know, we, we, we look at them when they're not looking at us and we think, Oh God, I think what we're trying to do is beat vulnerability to the punch. We're trying to, Say, look, vulnerability, I'm not going to let you catch me off guard and hurt me. So I'm going to dress, rehearse tragedy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to prepare myself for all of this goodness to be, you know, pulled out from underneath me like a rug. And so what I think we end up doing is we end up squandering so many of the joyful moments in our lives out of the fear of if we let ourselves actually feel it we're going to be more hurt in the long run. And so one of, so that, that's on a kind of on a, we found it on a kind of a continuum all the way from people like me, who I will literally in my head dress rehearse tragedy. I will literally be looking at my kid, become engulfed by this love and joy, and then push it away by picturing something very horrible happening. Um, But then there are people kind of on the other side of the continuum who may not dress rehearse tragedy, but they, kind of never get too excited about anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember I, one of the stories that I tell in the book is about a man who said, you know, I never really got too excited or too disappointed. I just kind of, you know, I just, if it was a good thing, I thought, well, something bad will come along and even that out. If it's a bad thing, we'll get better eventually. And he said, you know, I thought that would keep me from feeling hurt and disappointed and grief. And his, he and his wife were in a car accident, and his wife was killed. And he was an older guy, probably, made, you know, old. I got to be careful about older these days, but, you know, maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe like late 60s. And he said, My wife was killed. And in that moment, I thought to myself, God, I wish I would have been paying more attention and feeling more of the joyful moments that are now gone. And he said, The commitment I made to her when she died is I'm going to fully feel everything. In those great moments with my grandkids or in those moments when I'm staying on the, you know, on the edge of the Grand Canyon or whatever it is, I'm going to absolutely let that terrifying kind of joy wash over me and think, God, this is amazing. Um, So I do think we have a tendency to think, you know what, if I just stay disappointed, that's easier than feeling disappointed. Mm
1: hmm. It's a is a, a general kind of numbing sensation, so we don't have to really feel the the dark darks.
2: Well, you know what's interesting, I think, is that I think everybody in those moments of intense joy and those in, you know intense love, everyone I interviewed, even the people who are really good at feeling their way through joy, have that kind of electric sensation in them. Like, oh God, I. I I'm, a, I'm aware of how great this is right now. Mm-hmm. But there are some people like me who use that sensation as the early warning system to like, oh my God, practice tragedy, practice, rehearse, rehearse. But then there are some people and, the, you know, every single one of the people who talked about, the participants, who talked about the ability to really sink into joy, to really feel it, when they got that sensation, when they knew they were in the midst of real bliss and joy, they used that kind of tingling as a reminder to practice gratitude.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And the thing that let them stay in that emotion longer was gratitude. So, you know, so now when I'm trying, you know, and, I, and I've really practiced this hardcore for the last five years, and it, it has been so amazing. Um, so what I am seeing over my kids now, and I am engulfed in that feeling of just, Wonder and enchantment, and I feel like I feel that creeping, oh boy, um I just say out loud, I'm so grateful for them, you know I'm so grateful for you, I'm so grateful that right now, right this minute, you're just right here with me, um, and I think that's what allows us to stay in the joy longer,
1: so instead of making that me the the negative stuff that comes up mean of oh my gosh I need to prepare for tragedy and I'm not prepared enough you use that as a reminder then to what can you appreciate what can you be grateful for yeah
2: because you know it's one of the big research commitments I made doing this work that I would never talk about joy without talking about gratitude because in 12 years I've never interviewed anyone who talked about the capacity to hold space for real joy who did not practice gratitude you know, and I mean, and I don't mean, you know, had an attitude of gratitude. I meant practice gratitude, like did something tangible that you could point to
0: mm-hmm. and call out, mm-hmm.
2: you know, either kept a gratitude journal, you know, said what they were grateful for out loud. Um, we say grace at dinner every night, and now we go around the table after grace and we say what we're grateful for for the day. Um, some people do it at tuck ins some people, you know, mm-hmm. but we need to do something.
1: Yeah, no, when I started that, my youngest Elle was, um, I don't know, she was pretty young, I think six, where we say what we're grateful for for the day. And it has to be that day. It can't be, oh, I'm grateful that my birthday's coming up in two weeks. Right. <laughs> and um, and it, I started it. And then the next day, she's like, oh, mom, we need to do what we're grateful for. Like, she really liked that, that ritual, I guess. Um, oh
2: my God. Yeah. My kids are the same way. Like if we, sometimes we're flying through grace and dinner. Cause you know, we've got soccer practice and piano and we've got to do homework and we'll just be like, yeah, you know, we'll, we sing our little, we, we sing grace and like we're done, we'll start eating. And my kids will be like, uh, uh-uh. forks, <laughs> you know, forks down. What are you grateful for? <laughs> I think it's instills them with a sense of something important and safe. That we're going to be okay. That there are even in the midst of hard times, if we, you know, they had a mean girl, issue or something, you know, at school, there's still, it's still good.
1: Okay. So now I've, so my question is that when this wiring comes up, right. And we go into the negative and we're like, Oh, I have to practice tragedy. Right. I have to be prepared. I mean, at some point, aren't we just prepared enough for the bad things to happen?
2: I, I mean, I, you know, I think a couple of things. One is I don't think we can prepare. I think, you know, I've had the honor of talking to people who've had those experiences, who don't, don't have to, you know, think about them and pretend what's going to happen because they've experienced them. And, you know, and I think one of the things that's very clear, which makes total sense to me, is there's nothing you can do to practice or prepare for those phone calls or those moments.
0: Uh-huh. Well,
2: that's okay. um, you know, there's just nothing we can do. But we can, what we can do, and what we certainly do do, is we do squander the joy that we need that fills us up and, you know, revitalizes us and restores us, we can squander that joy um, in the process of trying to be prepared.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And, you know, I think joy is very additive in our lives. I think if we stay present for it and manage the vulnerability, you know, there's just so vulnerable to let ourselves feel joy, which is another reason I think, you know, people who say I don't do vulnerability or people who push vulnerability away also push joy away
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know and so i don't so i think i think joy is restorative i think it's additive and i think all those moments that we acknowledge it and let it wash over us and we soften into it i do th- i think those stack up somewhere in our lives and when hard things do come we're not less devastated or less sad but i think we have more bounce
1: mm-hmm. well don't because don't you think we have um i mean not that we can never prepare for the worst, but we, we also have evidence that we can get through. We are resilient.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I do. I think joy and accepting joy is a huge variable in resilience and what we know about resilience.
1: So are you saying we need joy then for resilience?
2: No question. Oh, no question in my mind.
1: So that'd be a reason to embrace joy.
2: It is. I think it's, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. Like, yeah, I know for some of us that are like a hard sell, I'm like, oh, okay. I need it to be resilient and I'll put it on the to do list. You know, like, yeah, that's that's good enough for me. I got it. Like, I'll do it. Um,
1: Otherwise, it's just frivolous.
2: Yeah. Then it seems like, oh, yeah.
1: That's self indulgence that joy stuff. (laughs) you know. But if it's to make me resilient for tragedy
2: that I can do. it. Now. Right, right. Oh, it serves it. Yeah, yeah. It's got a productive outcome. Count me in. I'll measure it. I'll start a metric. Yeah, I get it. Oh God, that's so uncomfortably me,
1: <laughs> myself included. <laughs> um, okay. Well, no, and that that's that's really inter- interesting. Um, when we go, when we, why why is it so hard for us to lean into vulnerability? What do you know, I think
2: that, I think there's a couple of things. I think culturally, the big picture answer is, you know, we live in a culture, I don't think this has changed since the last time you and I talked, um, that I would, I would define as a, as a culture of deep scarcity, of never enough. Never good enough, never enough time, never enough, we don't get enough done, um, never perfect enough, never extraordinary enough, never certain or safe enough, you know, never enough. And I think the more uncertain we are and the more fearful we are about the whole idea of not being enough, the more afraid we are to let ourselves be vulnerable. Um, Because, you know, what we have a tendency to do is go out into the world kind of armored up. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to armor up. I'm going to get out into the world. I'm going to get stuff done. I'm going to take care of business. I'm going to push through the, do, through the to-do list. I'm going to keep everybody on track. Focus, focus, focus. we got to move from here to here, you know. And I think we get so used to wearing the armor that we forget how heavy and suffocating it is. And I think the tendency, you know, I think the real consequence with families is that we don't because we get so accustomed to it we don't take it off when we get home we don't let ourselves really be seen by our partners and our kids we all are still performing you know and so I think it's just an exhausting way to live but for some reason we've convinced ourselves that it's safer
1: Mm -hmm. it's going to protect us Mm mm-hmm Well, and don't you think sometimes some of the messages we get, right, is to have that armor in the workplace, for instance?
2: Yeah, no doubt. There's no question, except that it goes against everything I've learned in my research and everything that many, many, if not most researchers who study leadership and organizational development find, which is show me the leader who's willing to stand in front of his or her team and say, hey, look, I don't have all the answers. I can't do this alone. I'm not the all-knowing perfect person. I need your help, your input, your ideas. I need to know what I'm doing well and what I need to change to support you. Show me that leader. And I don't, you know, I don't care if it's a CEO of a fortune 100 company. Um, I don't care who it is. Show me that leader. And that's the leader people will follow into a burning building. Mm -hmm. Um, we just know that people are, you know, really, really hungry for authentic, honest leadership. We don't want to be led by people who are infallible and perfect. We want to be led by people who let us see them and share stories and connect with us emotionally. We want to see ourselves reflected back in the people that we want to be inspired by.
1: And Brene, isn't there a gap, though, between wanting that kind of leadership and, and, and then actually having that kind of leadership out there in the workplace?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a gap. I think there are some extraordinary, extraordinary leaders who do it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think there are some who are absolutely trying. And I think there are some who don't buy in at all, who just believe my job as a leader is to be all knowing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think the consequence of that is disengagement, distrust, um, and a huge paucity of innovation. Because if you're perfect and all-knowing, then there's no way in hell I'm going to put my new idea, which kind of seems far-fetched and crazy, on the table.
1: Because mm-hmm. why risk my neck?
2: Right. Why risk my neck in a culture? You know, if you're a leader who believes in that, then the culture for sure is going to be one of perfectionism competition. You know, and so you in those in those environment you rarely see innovation
1: okay so if you're not a ceo say you're you're just one of the people that work there right mm-hmm. and how can one be vulnerable if the leadership's not vulnerable do you need to go i think find
2: it's a- really i think it's really tough
1: so you need to go find I think a it's, new environment
2: yeah i think it's really tough um and I think the way people protect themselves, you know, just like we protect ourselves from the emotionality of life by disengagement and, you know, living disappointed is I think people disengage at work. They do what they need to do to get by. Sometimes they'll even achieve, you know, um, but they're just not all in and, and they don't, they don't bring their whole selves to work, which is what we really need right now. We need, we've got big enough problems across every sector of this country mm-hmm. where we need people to bring all of themselves to work and show up in profoundly important ways. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: We need their ideas. You know, we need, it was interesting because when we interviewed HR professionals and we asked one of the questions I asked often over and over was when you're doing exit interviews with, with a person, you know, with talent who you really hate to be losing, what is one of the major, what's the biggest reason people say they're leaving? And I thought it would be, you know, a better salary or, you know, and this is not people who actually interviews with people who, you know, they're glad to see go, but people that they were thinking this is a loss for our company. And the biggest reason was lack of feedback.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, and, but doesn't that go back to the comfort thing? People don't give feedback because it's more comfortable just to right. not than it is to like give feedback risk if you're the employee or an employer right you've got litigation concerns you've got what if my employee takes this the wrong way right there's all kinds of fears that come up when you're the employer about giving feedback the employee can have fears of oh my gosh if they tell me that I'm weak at this does that mean I'm gonna lose my job right depending on the mindset of the actual organization the workplace
2: But I think the bigger issue, I think, for leaders around giving feedback is not the fear of litigation, but it's the fear of being vulnerable. Because you cannot give good feedback, meaningful feedback, unless you show up with the same level of vulnerability that you expect that employee to show up with. You cannot give good feedback unless you are willing to hear part of the story that you maybe didn't know, unless you're willing to hear and own your part unless you're willing to hear and and accept and understand that there's a bigger picture at play. I mean, giving feedback should be as excruciatingly vulnerable as receiving it. And so we go back to the all-knowing leader who sits down in a very kind of didactic way and says, here's what you're doing well, here's what you're doing wrong, and you know, here's what we need you to change, and good job on these. That's not feedback.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I mean, I think one of the things I do in Daring greatly is I, I, the people who said, I'm really good at giving feedback, I show up vulnerable, here's, you know, here are the things that work well for me. We, I took them and I made them into a, a checklist, like, here's the engaged feedback checklist. You need to be able to have all 10 of these things in place before you're ready to give feedback,
0: mm-hmm.
2: which is, you know, you're willing to sit down next to someone, then, you know, as opposed to across from them. Mm -hmm. You're willing to put the problem, you know, with both of you, not between you. Um, You're willing to be vulnerable and be uh, as open as you expect them to be. You're willing to listen, own your response. You know, it's it's feedback is not a one directional process like most people experience it. Mm
1: -hmm. I love the sitting on the same side of the table instead of putting a physical barrier, right? Being on the same side of the table as the person. I love that part when I was reading in your book, I was like, oh, that's really, really good. Cause it's, isn't that almost like showing you, look, we're we're in this together.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a huge part of my training as a social worker, you know, as a social worker, if someone came into our office, even if we had an office set up, which would be unusual, but if we had an office set up where there would be a desk between us and, you know, the door coming in, we would never have a conversation with someone from the other side of the desk. That just violates every principle that we're trained in. You know, we would just never have that thing between us, that thing that is totally leverages and exploits the power differential in the room. Mm -hmm. It's just, you can't communicate like that or you can communicate like that. But what you're communicating, no matter what you're saying verbally, what you're communicating is I have more power than you. I have more control than you. And here's how this is going to happen. And I think the true thing is same true is, is for parenting. I mean, I think when I sit down with my kids to share some concerns or, you know, let them know what I think is going really well, um, I sit with them. I don't sit across from them. I sit down next to them, you know, usually on the couch and, you know, we just kind of turn knee to knee and talk about something. But I also... Have to try to get myself in that mindset, that checklist mindset, even when I before I talk to my kids about something hard.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I th- I liked your checklist. Your parenting chapter scared me before I went to go read it. Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, do I really want to read this? And then I think about you know that that when I was thinking about sitting on the same side of the you know the t- or sitting next to them, sitting, it's the same side as the person. And I thought about it with my daughter who's in seventh grade, Mia, you know, a lot of times, um, she's sitting at the island and then I'm on the other side just talking to her. And so now I have to figure out, so, cause I'm now, I'm not sitting on the same side as her, right? Cause we've got the island in between us.
2: I don't know. Cause you know, I don't know. Sometimes I think the island's helpful cause I, we have an island too. And sometimes I think, you know, sometimes I have the most, it depends, you know, if it's a feedback conversation, that's one thing. Then just uh, debriefing the day, mm-hmm. like we debrief the day across the island. Yes, we debrief the day. Sometimes the best, most intimate debriefings I get from my kids often is when I'm driving.
1: Yes, yes.
2: I think you know if you know I, when I walk to the edge of Ellen's bed and look straight at her and I'm facing her and I say, you know, hey, I want to talk about your day. She'll, she's you know she gets terrified she's like oh my god did something bad happen you know um or you know where we also have some of our, of our most you know deepest most meaningful conversations by 13 year old ellen and i is playing ping pong
0: mm-hmm.
2: we get we have a ping pong you know table in our game room we could play ping pong for like you know an hour and it's just you know and so sometimes i think that's very helpful you know i hear parents all the time say yeah my son tells me everything when we're shooting hoops in the backyard hmm so, but i think it's the feedback piece when there's something i need to share with you and i've got a concern or when you know it doesn't have to be just corrective feedback which is you know a very kind of organizational word but it can also be just i want to let you know what i'm seeing and i've got some concerns or i want to know, i want i want you to know what i'm seeing i think it's really great what you're doing um, those i think we have to come around from the other side of the island
1: mhm
2: give them the import that they deserve
1: now so with what does vulnerability look like in the terms of family um when it comes to our own concerns or fears say more so you know if okay so parents are always worried about how their kid's going to turn out right so my question is is that here (laughs) yes is 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 that being vulnerable when you're conveying those fears about what your child may or may end up to be?
2: I, you know, I think, I mean, I think when we convey them with each other, I think when we convey them with friends, you know, I think that's, I think that's connecting. I think it's helpful. Um, I think there can be a form of that, it depends on how we express that with our children, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: you know, but I think when I'm talking to my husband about it, or if I'm talking to my girlfriends about, Oh man, this is going on. I'm so worried. and I hope this is okay. um, I think that's a real connecting time a lot of often between me and my friends. So I guess maybe it'd be more helpful with an example.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, sometimes we may say like, okay, so, say drugs or sex can be an issue, right? We're afraid of that. Yeah. Something happening. And how, I guess, how much, where's the, where's kind of the boundary around that vulnerability when we're talking about that subject matter with our kids? Well, I think it's different depending on how, I think the boundary, I think the line moves depending
2: on who your child is, what the issue is, and how old they are. Um, but I think... You know, if you're talking about a conversation where you sit your child down and say, you know, these are some concerns I have, and this is what I think is going on at your school or what's going on in the neighborhood, and I want to talk to you about it and make you aware of it and tell you what, you know, your dad and I want to talk about what we're feeling. I mean, I think that's really healthy. So tell me what you think might be an example of something that could be crossing that
1: line. So it sounds like in that it's about not being coming from a fearful place as far as like your lizard brain, but... T- but talking about the realities of what could be potentially going on. So you, you need right. to clean up yourself before you walk into that. Being, being Oh my God. Yes. Being vulnerable doesn't mean, Oh my gosh, you're going to just throw up and all this fear stuff in front of them. That's not vulnerability. That's what I guess I'm trying to get at.
2: No, I mean, that's a great, okay. So this is a great like time to talk about like the second, the second myth of vulnerability, which is vulnerability is letting it all hang out. Mm-hmm. You know, vulnerability is, you know, live tweeting your bikini wax or going, you know, going crazy with your kids or sharing the details of your divorce on Facebook, you know, that's not vulnerability. You know, vulnerability is about trust, intimacy, and connection. Vulnerability without boundaries is not vulnerability. It's desperation. It's hurt. It's um, a desire to expedite connection. It's a lot of things, but vulnerability without boundaries is not vulnerability. You know, and so I think when we talk to our children about our, you know, our concerns that it's really important that we don't approach them in a lot of fear because, you know, the way that fear kind of, think, manifests itself as parents is control, distrust. Um, I don't think, you know, we're not, we're not, you know, we're not our best selves in fear
0: Mm
1: -hmm.
2: individually or collectively. Mm -hmm. Right?
1: No, I totally agree with you. I totally yeah, like,
2: I, I suck in fear. <laughs> I do. I, I, I do. I am I'm also really judgmental in fear.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Like, I'll say things like, I don't want you hanging out with her.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, when or so I don't care, you know, I don't care what everybody else is doing. You know, and it's really terrible because I've got this daughter who has, you know, I've got, you know, my son is seven. So the trust things are a little bit easier right now. It's about. Um, yeah, cause he's not in eighth grade going into high school, but, um, I've got a daughter who's done everything possible to earn our trust and respect,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know? And so when I get fearful about something and I, you know, come unhinged, it's really, she perceives it as probably disrespectful, but also a lack of trust.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And I guess, so my next question is, is that what's the difference between gremlins and lizard brain? Well, lizard brain is kind of the limbic system.
2: So li- lizard brain is the fight-flight response when we're in fear or when we're in shame. So something shaming happens and you know oh my god i could give you a great example from the book um someone invites me to do a talk for his organization Mm -hmm. um and it didn't come through my speaker's office it came somehow oddly enough directly to me which is always not good because i don't manage my calendar well um (laughs) so i just get overwhelmed as you know (laughs) um and so i you know that he you know said can you speak this date and i emailed back and i said you know, uh, thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate it. I can't do it. My son's birthday is that week. He emails back and says, so is it that day? And I, and my son, my hear my gremlins. My gremlins are saying, my gremlins are my shame tapes. Those are the things that were planted into me early, family of origin kind of stuff. Don't disappoint anybody, Brene. Don't let people down don't say no because you're going to start saying no and people are going to stop asking, who do you think you are?
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Those are my grim ones. So I email back and say, no, his birthday is not on that date, but it's that week and I want to, you know, I need to be home, which is the first mistake I make because it's none of his business. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And I shouldn't even, you know, I should have just said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I've got a commitment that week. Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So he emails back and says, you know, you're not very wholehearted at all. And you're not very generous. And I would think someone with your message would be willing to make time to do this. So I go into real shame. And when we go into shame and we go into the lizard brain, that limbic system, mm-hmm. there are three kind of responses. Fight. Fight flight, or freeze, parasympathetically. So, how that translates? The Stone Center at Wellesley talks about shame. When we're in shame, what those fight, flight, and freeze responses look like. So, some of us people please. Some of us disappear, like they just delete the email and just delete everyone that comes. You know, keeps coming. Mm-hmm. Some people say, you know, people please, and say, okay, I'll do it. And then some people fight. I have a tendency to be a fighter. Mm-hmm. And that's not good either. You know, we use shame to fight shame. So I'm so pissed off that I forward the email to Steve and write like this blazing indictment of this guy. I mean, I couldn't even say some of the words I said on here. Bad, like CON 5 cuss words. Um, and I hit reply instead of forward.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it goes back to this guy. So in that moment, so the gremlins are those shame tapes that really, you know, the gremlins have two primary messages. Who do you think you are and you're not good enough? And every variation. So my gremlins in that situation were, you should say yes. Don't get too big for your britches. You don't have a right to turn down people. You don't have a right to put your family first. You're taking work for granted, Mm -hmm. you know but the lizard brain in me was the one who went into fight flight and freeze mode. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so the, the hard thing is, you know, to be shame resilient, we have to not only be aware of what the gremlins are and how they got there. We have to be very aware. Like I violated the number one thing I know about myself in shame, which is when you're in shame, don't talk, text, email or speak. Like, I should not even have texted, I should not have written that email even to Steve. It probably wouldn't a good idea, even if I would have managed to forward it instead of replied back to the guy.
0: Because,
2: mm-hmm. you know, when we're in shame, we're really not fit for human consumption. You know, most of us need 15, 20 minutes to get back on our emotional feet before we can make really good decisions. And that's those of us who've practiced shame resilience for a while, who, hey, who started to realize who we are in shame and what it looks and feels like. So we know how to get out of it. Does that make sense?
1: It makes total sense.
2: Yeah. So the gremlins are those kind of messages of not good enough. And, and we all have different ones.
1: Mm-hmm. So the gremlins, the messages, and then the, the lizard brain is how we react mm-hmm. when we're in that place, when exactly. we're in that place of shame. And and so like when we are talking about being vulnerable with our kids, we don't want to have, we want to clean up the gremlins. We want to clean up the lizard brain and not come in and react. Maybe our child did something and then come in and react and from oh, a place of being in our right. lizard brain. Right? That's right. Because that, that's not vulnerability.
2: No. And we are the most likely to shame others in the moments when we feel that when we're in lizard brain. Ooh. Yeah, which is really, really, I mean, you think it's painful to reflect back on the times that you have experienced shame in your own life or when, you know, when I think about the times I've been shamed, but nothing, and I mean nothing, is as painful as to think about some of the things we've said to the people we love the most. Mm-hmm. And if we think about when we said them and why we said them, what we'll find is that we were in our own shame spiral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we have a tendency to really discharge on our children.
1: Okay, so that now leads me to this new question. Uh So when we are with somebody who is in their own shame spiral and they are coming at us, how do we protect ourselves? You know, it's like talking to a drunk person. A lot of times when
2: people are in shame and that whole limbic system, you know, the problem is, you know, if you kind of, if you're listening and you're trying to figure this out in in your own life, like if you kind of touch your forehead or swipe your fingers across the front of your forehead, that's kind of your prefrontal cortex. That's where we think, rationalize, organize, analyze, do our learning, make good choices. You know, the problem is that when the limbic system is hijacked or activated, the way that brain chemistry works is that the, the prefrontal cortex comes offline.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: They don't work together. It's not like when something shaming happens, we think, oh, a warm wash of inadequacy has come over me, Um, and I'm feeling small and less than, and my responses right now are not going to be proportional to what's happening. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not what happens. I mean, I, I can give you a great example. I can give you the example of people who tell me that they're watching their son, you know, at a soccer game. And, you know, he's playing goalie and he misses the ball and a goal goes in and then he misses a ball in the next quarter and a goal goes in and then all of a sudden mom or dad go crazy. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? Come on. Show up. Dang, that's your house. God, that come on. I mean that whole thing, <laughs> which I'm sure you've never seen like we have parents ejected in our
0: club. Mm-hmm.
2: So do we. Club. Yeah. in our club travel soccer that my daughter plays. Um, and so what is going on? And a lot of time what's going on is parents are in their own shame. Cause let me tell you, there's nothing more uncomfortable than sitting on the sideline when your kid's playing goalie
0: mm-hmm. or when,
2: you know, or your child, you know, scores a goal, but accidentally in the wrong net for the wrong team, you know, I mean it's like, you know, it's that those are hard moments. And so if we're not clean, if we're not clear, if we've got our self worth tied to you know how our nine year old is performing on the pitch, then you know we're very dangerous in those situations like and i'll give you an example my son was playing his first uh it's probably not a semester season yeah his first this is the problem with being academic because i keep time still in semesters um his first season of little league little league baseball and he was doing really great and Felt really comfortable. You know, it was the pitching machine, and if you, you know, three strikes on the pitching machine, they bring the tee out, still no score, you know, keeping score. You know, really the first kind of entry-level Little League. And so it was his turn to bat, and I was, you know, not comfortable. I was feeling very vulnerable and very nervous, as was my husband. And Charlie got halfway up to home plate and just started crying and set the bat down and kind of just got in a ball and was crying. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is the second player who had done that in this game. It was their first game. And the first player who had done it, the dad was like, get up, get up, get the bat. Come on, get the bat, you know. And so, you know, there's Charlie. And I'm like, oh, my God, what do we do? I need to go get him. Oh, my God, what do I do? She so said, you just sit here. You let the coach handle it. We, you know, the coach is Great. Was a coach, we just had the best coach in the whole world. I mean, just father of four boys, was a pitcher, I think at Harvard or something, serious baseball player, but just really loved, for love of the sport. That's what he believed in when they were this age. And he went and he got him and he knelt down and he talked to him. And, you know, there was a lot of wiping of tears and crying. And he, you know, and I saw him, you know, shaking his head, and not tell him it was okay. He held his hand and he picked up the bat and walked him back to the dugout. <laughs> it's like, Charlie was like, no way in hell is this going to that, you know, and, I remember thinking that, I don't know, five years ago, my thinking would have been "Frickin', get up, get to home plate and hit the ball. Mm -hmm. You know, and so when talking to Charlie about it, you know, Charlie said, I got really confused and Charlie's like me in many ways. He likes to know exactly what the layout of something is before he engages. And he's like, I forgot which way you run. Mm -hmm. I forgot what you did after you hit the ball. And I just couldn't do it. I don't, I can't, I couldn't do it. And I was like, oh my God, that's totally okay. I get it. That's all right. And I said, did your coach use nice words or, you know, did you feel okay? And he said, he used really nice words. He told me, you know, in that two seconds that he was down on, you know, it seemed like four hours from the stands, but in the, you know, in the literally two minutes, he was down there with him and the game has stopped. He manages to tell, you know, Charlie a story about him running the wrong way, you know, of him running into the next field one time and that Mm -hmm. it was totally okay and he'd have another chance to bat. He goes, I think if we don't have our stuff clear, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: we, our kids, take friendly fire. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: We may not be shooting directly at them, but they're going down anyway. Because we're our stuff is not clear. Mm-hmm. Our self worth is somehow hitched to the six year old's home run. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and I'm sure you see it all the time because you coach. I see it all the time.
2: Yeah. I'm yeah, not- and that's why you know sometimes I have to put myself in a trance because I'm I I was not raised like that. I was raised by you know. I don't think my dad could have made it through a single game now that there are new rules about p- parents yelling and coaching from the sidelines.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: My dad was super out of control and a lot of stuff. And I had that some of that is, is you know, as hard as it was for me growing up um, and as painful as it was at times, I think it's still the wiring and it's still my default place sometimes.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I think if we don't get who we are and where we come from, know, it's really funny, too, because now my dad goes to my kids' games, and he paces behind the row of chairs at the soccer game.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And he's like, I, I got to go to the car, sis. He calls me sis. And I'm like, what's wrong? And he goes, there's too much pressure on these kids. They're kids. There's too much pressure on them. I'm like, who are you? I was like, Dad, do you remember? He's like, I don't know. What, I don't know what what was happening back then, but there's too much pressure on these kids right now. This should be fun. I don't know why they're keeping score, damn it. You know, so he's come a long way. <laughs> but, so, but yeah, I just think one of the things that I've learned from the research that is so helpful for me in those moments, and one of the ways I pull myself out of lizard brain is... I always think to myself, it's not my job to get him ready for varsity baseball in high school or to make sure that my daughter makes the A team in soccer that, you know, that's not, my job is to make sure they know they're worthy of love and belonging. That's my job. And so I'm sure I was sitting in the stands. Are you a Harry Potter person?
1: No, but I I can go with it.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, there's a scene in Harry Potter where um, someone's putting a curse on Harry while he's playing Quidditch, and this person's just sitting in the stands looking at him mumbling, and I'm sure that's exactly what I look like. Like, I was just sitting in the stands going, love and belonging, love and belonging, love and belonging. It's not my job to make my six-year-old ready for the major leagues. Mm -hmm. It's my job to make sure he knows he's worthy of love and belonging and not being able to bat crying in front of his team, none of that changes at one iota. You know, that's my job.
1: Mm -hmm. No, and I think that's beautifully well said. And then one last question before we go into Mm -hmm. the takeaways is, so what happens, and with the kid it's different, so like when we do vulnerability with, say, friends or partners or husbands or spouses, Mm -hmm. right, or family members, and they are in their shame spiral, And they're attacking us. How do we protect from that?
2: You know, I just have, I, I, you know, let me, okay. So can I combine this answer with a takeaway? Yes. So the men and women who have high levels of shame resilience share four things in common. Um, There were, you know, and this was across, you know, 11,000 pieces of data, 12 years of research. They have four things in common every single time. One, and I'm just going to talk about one of them as a takeaway, is men and women who have high levels of resilience to shame know physically when they're in shame. So, for example, I'll ask you, if something shaming happens to you, what are, what's your physical symptomology? What happens to you physically when that's happening? I start to shut down. Okay, you start to shut down. What else is happening? Tell me about your body. What's happening in your body when that happens? It gets tense. You get tense. What else is happening?
1: um i I start to feel heavy you start to feel heavy what else um my stomach gets tight okay
2: so for me and i can rattle mine off just because i've been doing this for so long you know so i have almost everything you just named Mm -hmm. but i can tell you exactly what happens time slows down i get tunnel vision My chest gets hot and red, my armpits tingle, and my mouth gets dry. If I were driving down 59, the highway in Houston, a highway in Houston, and an 18-wheeler in front of me jackknifed and I had to slam on my brakes, it's the exact same response that would happen to me in the car. Time would slow down, I'd get tunnel vision, my mouth would get dry, my armpits would tingle. It's super important for us to recognize when we're in shame for two reasons. One, we just talked about, like when I'm in shame, I need, I have, I have walked away from my children. I have walked out of a faculty meeting. I've walked out of my boss's office. I've walked out of work with clients, with research participants. I know when I'm in shame, I've got, you know, I know what it takes to get back on my emotional feet. I'm probably going to cry and I need probably 10 minutes and I have to do a lot of serious praying and I'm going to have to be by myself to figure out what's happening and why. The other thing that's really helpful for is if I'm talking to someone and I start getting that symptomology, which is basically trauma symptomology. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, if I can get out the words, this is not productive conversation. I'm walking away. I will. If not, I just turn on my heels and walk away because my tendency in shame depending on who I'm with is to come out swinging. Mm -hmm. And there's very little that we do when we're in shame that's productive or helps us move through it. Normally what we do when we're in shame exacerbates our shame. And so one of the takeaways is if you want to get, if you really want to get some great awareness as a leader, as a parent, as a partner, you know, really think about what is your symptomology with shame? Does your heart race? Do you feel like, you know, what? what is your symptomology? Because every man and woman I've interviewed who can really, you know, the whole idea of shame resilience is to have something shaming happen and not go down.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: To actually be able to move through it constructively in a way that aligns with your values makes you feel proud of the way you handled it. And in order to do that, the reason why, you know, when that when I realized I hit sent reply instead of forward on that email, I knew I was in shame because all that physical symptomology. So I closed my laptop because, you know, he emailed back in 20 seconds and I didn't want to, you know, I, I didn't need to see that then. Mm-hmm. Closed my laptop. I walked around in circles around my house. I started breathing and I started saying, oh, my God, reach out, reach out reach out, reach out. Because shame, this is the other take it way. Shame can't survive being spoken. You know, shame needs three things to grow exponentially. Silence, secrecy, and judgment. So when something shaming happens or when we're feeling like we went into the arena and got our ass kicked and we're thinking, why did I do that? Why did I ask for that raise? Why did I raise my hand? Why did I say I love you first? Mm Mm-hmm. the the counterintuitive but life-saving thing to do is to reach out to someone we trust and tell that story. To pick up the phone and say, oh, Corinne, it's Brene. Do you have a second? I'm just in a shame spiral. I've got a total vulnerability hangover right now. And then to share that story, because once we share it, shame can't survive. And if you respond empathically to me, if you say,
0: oh, my God,
2: I've done it. I've done that email thing. I've done that. E- it's, it's so dangerous. Oh, my God, I've done it. You know what? You're not alone. If you use email, that's going to happen. And that would feel like empathy to me. Like if mm-hmm. you said, oh, Brene, I embrace your warmth, you know, I, I would be like, <laughs> oh, God, bro. but if you were like, holy crap, I've done that, I was like, oh, she gets it. Mm-hmm. And the moment empathy touches shame, it dissolves. Because empathy needs us to know that we're alone. I mean, shame needs us to know, you know, that we're alone, that we have nobody, that we're less lovable, less, less worthy of connection and belonging. And so the minute you're empathic with me or the minute I'm empathic with my daughter, if she does something like that, then she goes, oh God, I'm not alone. Now, the minute the coach kneeled down with Charlie and said, hey, I've had this, I've had this experience. Mm -hmm. You're all right. Mm-hmm. you're okay. That's why shame loves perfectionists because it's so easy to keep us quiet when we make a mistake.
1: Ooh. And that's, that's what it wants. It wants to keep right. us quiet. Yeah. Cause it needs
2: quiet to grow exponentially into every corner and crevice of your life.
1: Okay. Okay. So, so like even taking that example of when, when that gentleman emailed you, right, mm-hmm. he was in his own stuff or, or maybe he wasn't, but he threw shame at you. Oh, he did. Right. And so... Anytime
2: someone uses something they know about you or you've shared it with them against you,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. they're trying to hurt you. I like that. Um, so So when somebody's coming at you and they're in their own shame spiral, one is to walk away or to and notice the physical sensations that is happening to you? Is it like, is it like uh, being kind of dumped on? Like they have their mm-hmm. shame and then we're kind of catching it and then our, it's creating our own shame. No question. I mean, yeah. And so, so noticing that versus reacting to it from our, our lizard brain. Yeah.
2: Because the thing is, once we realize that we're in it, we know that the, what the knowing piece is, I'm not, I don't have the capacity to respond to this way. To, to respond to this in a good way right now. The minute I saw that email, the minute I felt like, oh my God, I've disappointed someone, I've let someone down, who do I think I am? I should have shut the email and walked away.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, well, that that's, I think, an excellent takeaway and example for people to understand not to take on somebody else's shame, because normally, I too would want to fight back, right? Yeah. Let me show you. I'm not going to let yeah. you take advantage of me. <laughs>
2: Or even if we're not fighters, I think one of the most, you know, people think it's benign, but it's super dangerous. Let me explain and prove to him I'm a good person.
1: Oh, yes.
2: Let me, you know, and it's like my friend Scott Stratton, um, who wrote the book Unmarketing, um, who's just, he has this great quote that says, don't try to win over the haters. You're not the jackass whisperer. (laughs) Which is just this great quote. And like I'm always constantly, you know, now when my husband sees me doing that or even my daughter sees me doing it or I see her doing it, we have this family code where we just kind of look at each other and go, "Eh -ah." (laughs) eh-ah. Like, don't try to win that person over. You don't need to explain who you are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to make the event. I appreciate your interest. Have a good day, Mm Brene. Who do you think you are? You're not very wholehearted. Appropriate response. Shame, maybe, vulnerability, walk away, get back on my feet, talk to someone about it, and then come back and hit delete.
1: Mm -hmm. Not even engage back. No, I'm not engaging. engaging.
2: No, because if you're trying to hurt me and you're trying to hook me into something, I'm not, you know, hopefully I'm not going to respond when I'm in shame, but I'm only going to use time and energy to respond if you're a person with whom I have a relationship that I'm invested. If you're a friend, a sibling, you know, a parent, someone I love, my partner, you know, Steve, my husband, my kids, then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get back on my feet and then I'm going to say, here's what it does not, this is not productive for me. And if we want to talk about this, we can, but I, but this is not working for me, but for him, I have, I don't, you know, I don't, I, I'm not going to invest that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Brene. We've run out of time. We've actually gone over. Thank you so much for being Thanks back. Thanks for having
2: it. me again. And I've met some of your people along the in my travels and my journey speaking. Um, and they're great folks.
1: So thank you. Well, thank you very much. I just love talking with Brene. And I love re-listening to the shows. I learn so much or I remember things. And she has such a great way with words. And one of them is the definition of vulnerability. Vulnerability is uncertainty, emotional exposure, and risk. Uncertainty, emotional exposure, and risk. And when I go and give talks or facilitate workshops or work with my clients in the Daring Way coaching program, one of the things that my clients or the people I work with often say is they don't like any of those. Here's the thing. Vulnerability is the pathway to living wholeheartedly. It is the pathway. We must go through this. And then also remember, while we don't want to feel shame, we can't become resistant to it. However, we can become resilient towards shame. And what that means is that we feel the shame and we move through it instead of allowing it to take us down or to run away from it and hide, stick our head in the sand. And when we are in shame, there are three things we like to do or that we do, we react by when we are in shame and we shield ourselves from shame by disconnecting. I call it approval whoring. Brene has a much nicer term called people pleasing. Approval whoring really catches my brain and reminds me of what I'm doing right away. And then the other one that Brene uses and it's my go-to as well is inner gladiator. Seek and destroy. You're going to mess with me. Bring it on. So instead of using these shame shields, which are destructive and create even more disconnection, which is the very opposite of what we truly want, I invite you to practice understanding your shame symptoms because when you know what shame feels like in your body, then you can choose how you're going to react to them. You can catch the feelings and move through it instead of reacting with one of the shame shields, which then creates further disconnection. I invite you to move out of our shame and scarcity culture and into one of wholehearted living. According to Brene, when you live wholeheartedly, your experiences of shame are still painful and challenge your sense of worthiness. However, they can also lead to deeper self-compassion, empathy, and authenticity. If you're listening to this show in September of 2017, I'm going to be opening up a new group coaching program this fall. It's called Enough. I'm a master certified life coach and a trained Daring Way facilitator in Brene Brown's work. And for the past few years, I've worked one-on-one with clients as they did their shame work, Brene discussed in the show. My clients worked on loving themselves, practicing self-compassion, and cultivating belonging in their life while letting go of perfection and the voices of you're not enough. Do you have the voice of I'm not enough? I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough, thin enough, strong enough, smart enough. In this group coaching program, we will remove those voices as you move towards your worthiness, self-love and self-compassion. If you're ready to finally let go of your story of not being blank enough, you will want to be a part of my new group coaching program. Go to the link in the show notes and sign up to be the first to know about my enough group coaching coaching program. Thank you so much for listening. I'm smiling big for you. Early morning,
0: fog is lifting. She's in a rowboat on a lake. She is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wide away. Captured in the-